KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. Why doctors say the new COVID subvariant is the worst yet? This uh, variant uh, is quite problematic. I don't think we're giving it enough respect. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Nine eight eight is the new suicide crisis lifeline. One of the powerful things about nine eight eight is that it gives us an opportunity to talk publicly about the breadth of behavioral health concerns and the importance of accessing care. Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs talks abortion rights after her arrest at a demonstration. And we'll tell you about a new vinyl listening bar, along with Comic-Con. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. COVID isn't conquered. With those words in the LA Times last week, my next guest urged for more action to combat the rise in coronavirus cases and hospitalizations as a result of the BA5 variant. Also last week, San Diego County moved into the high or orange coronavirus tier due to increasing case numbers and hospitalizations in the area. That prompted an indoor mask mandate for San Diego Unified Schools. Meanwhile, Comic-Con returns to downtown San Diego tomorrow for its first large in-person gathering since the pandemic began, with a mask mandate and testing policies in place. Joining me once again with a COVID update is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back. Thanks, Jade. Always good to be with you. In your most recent article on your blog, you compare our handling of COVID to that of a boiling frog. Why? Well, the issue is that BA5, as we discussed last time we got together, was heating up throughout the country. And there's a lack of perception that it's really the worst variant by its properties in terms of how infectious uh, in terms of starting to crack our vaccine protection, even against severe things like hospitalizations. And so we're not feeling it because we have this immunity wall being built at the same time because of so many infections and vaccinations and boosters. So this lack of perception, because it's a gradual, all these different variants that have been occurring over the course of two and a half years, we're missing the fact that the latest variant that is now taking over the country, BA5, and certainly in San Diego, is the worst one. And we're in, in a denial state, willing in a way isn't going to work. You maintain that BA5 is the worst version of this virus we've seen yet, despite the fact that deaths and hospitalizations are not where they once were. So why is BA5 the worst, in your opinion? Well, if you look at places that didn't have lots of prior infection, like just say Japan, now a record number of cases throughout the whole pandemic, even exceeding BA1, uh, you can see that had we had this variant before BA1, the Omicron, the wave that hit us so hard in January and February, it would have been even worse. So the point is that 
the virus version is substantially different. The, the so-called distance of the protein or antigen distance, the genetic distance. I mean, it's it's a basically it deserves its own Greek letter. It's so different than Omicron BA1. If you look at it from every property you can think of of a virus, this one is clearly the worst since the pandemic began. But because we have so much immunity, we have this optics, this idea that, oh, it's not so bad. But actually, another uh, attribute that you are seeing is that it's lasting longer. People who are getting infected with BA5, uh, their time of being positive testing and having symptoms is longer than prior versions of the virus, which goes along with it. You don't have to look at deaths and hospitalizations to say that that's an issue, although they're both going up throughout the country, uh, and certainly not nearly uh, what we saw in the worst BA1 Omicron wave. But again, that's just because we've got lots of protection out there. Can you give us the latest on the COVID situation here in San Diego? Uh, What do recent numbers tell us? Well, you touched on that in the opening. Uh, Everything's on the way up. And this is uh, not a good picture because we don't know where the peak is going to be. We know that we have weeks to go to get through BA5. And so we're starting to see the increase in hospitalizations. Fortunately, not at the level that uh, in the worst times previously, but they'll continue to go up, no less the number of people infected. The critical issue that you know well is that our testing centrally is very minimal. And so the number of people who are actually infected or infectious, not even knowing that they're infected, is very high. And, you know, in the country, it's gone up to about 130,000 cases a day, but it's probably at least 700,000 or a million a day. We just don't know because so many people are either not testing or doing rapid tests at home. You know, the Novavax vaccine was approved yesterday by the CDC. How does this vaccine differ from the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine? Right. Well, this is a protein-based vaccine. So instead of the Moderna or Pfizer, which is a messenger RNA which once it gets into the cells, it encodes the protein. This is just direct to the protein. It's very similar otherwise. It's basically using the spike, the key portion of of the virus to induce our immune response. And the data that was presented this week to the CDC and previously the FDA looked like it's uh, very comparable to the mRNA vaccines. And so hopefully more people will get vaccinated. It also may have use as a booster That is because it's somewhat different. That whole idea of mixing might have some appeal as we get more data about that. Currently, people above 50 are those who are high risk are eligible to get the fourth shot of the COVID vaccine. Do you think it's time for eligibility to be expanded to more of the population? Yes, both that we don't have enough people who are 50 and older getting the fourth shot. You know, we're at about uh, 27 percent. That should be 100 percent. The reason being is the risk of death and hospitalization in people over age 50 is substantially lowered by a four shot. We have four studies to prove that. But then people less than 50, you know, there's many people there, such as healthcare workers or essential workers who have lots of risk. And that would be great to use those shots because otherwise they're going to get thrown away because they're about to expire. Tens of millions of doses to be thrown away. So we don't have the green light to get these out there, but we should. We should have gotten them going some time ago. But the people who have a considerable risk because of their work 
uh, or because of their medical status with lots of different coexisting conditions, even less than age 50, should give this a consideration. Uh, what is the data telling us about these newer variants, BA4, BA5, and long COVID too? Yeah, well, let's put aside BA4 because that really got completely outcompeted by BA5, which is taking over the country in terms of soon to be all the cases, BA5. It's about 80% right now. So this uh, variant, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is quite problematic. I don't think we're giving it enough respect as to the fact that it's showing attrition of our vaccines, even against severe protection to some extent. So this decoy to our immune system, that is this escape artist, it's a real problem. And the fact is we may not be done at BA5. We could see, you know, BAX or even a whole other family like Omicron. Hopefully not. But what's in store, unfortunately, is that the virus is evolution is, uh, is accelerated. Uh, as we've seen, we've gone from BA1 to 5 in a matter of months, whereas in the first year of the pandemic, we, there was no substantive evolution of the virus to change its properties. So we really should plan. That's why we need much better vaccines, these so-called universal pan-coronavirus vaccines, nasal vaccines, better drugs, because we may be seeing over the months ahead that the Paxlovid, which is keeping hospitalizations down, and that's important to emphasize, Paxlovid, could, we could develop resistance to it, the mutations in the critical portion of the virus to Paxlovid. So we should get more backup drugs out there. Uh, and that's something that's not enough effort, along with these better vaccines, is not happening right now. On the subject of drugs like Paxlovid, how are coronavirus treatments such as that doing against the BA5 variant? Are they proving to be effective against these newer variants? Yes. The good thing about Paxlovid is that it really hasn't been a variant-specific pill. I mean, it, the problem, however, even though it has a very good track record for reducing hospitalizations and deaths, there is this issue of rebound that's occurred commonly, whereby after five days of treatment of the blister pack, you know, a couple of days later, symptoms come back and the person does testing and they're still infectious and that can go on for several more days. So rebound is a problem. People are not winding up in the hospital. It's rare after Paxlovid, but the prolonged symptoms and infectiousness is, is not good. And what we're studying is whether a prolonged course instead of five days rather than 10 days to deal with these Omicron variants like BA5 might be better to help avoid the rebound phenomenon. The problem is the pills cause a lot of side effects. You know, the taste is really altered and also a lot of gastrointestinal side effects. So, you know, you don't want to take it for 10 days, but that may wind up being the way to deal with rebound. But it is working well in terms of reducing hospitalizations. And that's another part of this illusion that things aren't too bad when a lot of those people that might have wound up in the hospital were preventing that. Is anyone eligible to get Paxlovid or is it being reserved for people who are high risk? Well, it's supposed to be for high risk, but it's a doctor's prescription. So anybody who is symptomatic, has other conditions that might be in the department of worry that, you know, if this progressed, they could wind up in the hospital. You know, it's not hard to access Paxlovid. There's a very good supply right now. My, my biggest concern besides rebound is it's working well, but how long? 
and we don't have a backup pill. We really need that. And there's a bunch of candidates, just like with the vaccines that are pan coronavirus and nasal vaccines, a bunch of candidates for all these things, but we're not doing anything about that yet. San Diego County re-entered the high COVID tier last week. Are you satisfied with local public health officials' response since that change? Well, you know, it's disappointing because, as you mentioned, Jade, it's only the San Diego Unified School District that has asked for indoor masks to be used uh, routinely, but we don't have that from anyone else. And we know masks help if they're KN95s or N95s, and we're just not using them. People are tired and fed up and they don't want a mask, but it's, it's a help. It's not a guarantee to avoid BA5. But the problem is the virus is so hyper infectious and we're just playing into its properties by not masking up, particularly indoors, but possibly even outdoors, by not using our tools of ventilation, filtration and distancing. These things help while we're waiting for better ways to get on top or ahead of the virus with the the three biggies, the, the pan coronavirus, the nasal vaccines and better drugs. So we need something to bridge that and uh, we're just not, we're ignoring it largely, and that's unfortunate. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thank you. Thanks, Jade. After every report that references a mental health crisis or suicide, we and most media outlets include the number to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. And it's always been a standard 800 number, which could be a little hard to remember during a crisis. So the Department of Health and Human Services has launched a new number. 988 as the new suicide and crisis lifeline. The short, easy to remember number based on the popularity of the 911 emergency line is aimed at serving more Americans in crisis and expanding the options available for behavioral health services. And joining me is Dr. Luke Bergman, Director of the Behavioral Health Services Department for the County of San Diego. And Dr. Bergman, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Maureen. Glad to be here. So 988 is now the line to call for mental health emergencies anywhere in the U.S.? That's correct. Across the country, there is one number, 988, that uh, in any jurisdiction will connect you to a resource that can address behavioral health crises, so substance use and also mental health uh, crises. I did want to note just one caveat, which is that as the system is currently developed, if you dial from, say, uh, a phone with, say, a San Diego area code, you will be connected to the local San Diego County Access and Crisis Line resource. If you dial from a phone that has a different jurisdiction's area code, New York, Arizona, what have you, you'll be connected to that local resource. Uh, there's an opportunity for you then to explain to the person you would be talking with that you would want to be transferred to the the local resource if you happen to have a phone, as many people do in San Diego County, um, that does not have a San Diego County area code. And what kinds of situations and emergencies is the 988 number designed for? 
the National uh, Suicide Hotline number has been promoted as primarily a, a suicide call line, a, a line that folks would call in cases where they are experiencing suicidality. One of the things that we want to really emphasize locally and that other um, behavioral health jurisdiction leadership is emphasizing across the country is that we want to try to broaden people's um, understanding of the, the cases where it would be useful to call 988. So one doesn't have to, to, to be in the midst of a suicide-related crisis. One doesn't have to be calling on behalf of, of a loved one uh, or, or family member or social network member who is in imminent danger of self-harm. One of the powerful things about 988 is that it gives us an opportunity to, to talk publicly about the breadth of behavioral health concerns and the importance of accessing care, of seeking care and accessing care earlier in the midst uh, of an evolving crisis. When someone does call 988 in San Diego County, who will be answering the call? So 988, if dialed from a San Diego uh, County area code, will um, connect a caller to our established access and crisis line service. It's a service that's staffed with masters, uh, prepared, licensed clinical folks um, who can respond to calls in one of uh, 150 different languages 24-7. So that's a very well-established service. We've, of course, been anticipating that there would be, with the, with the establishment of 988, a significant uptick in total call volume um, to the uh, to the established access and, and crisis line. The estimates were that um, increases may, may be as much as 150% in call volume uh, over time. I read that close to 90% of people who call can get the help they need from a phone call. Talk about why having someone to talk to when you're in a mental health crisis can be so effective. Talk and talk therapy, relational interaction is really the bedrock of behavioral um, health care. Medication is important, ongoing connection to, to service is important, but the basic act of having a, a relational conversation with somebody is incredibly effective. The, the guidance that, that people in moments of crisis um, are given is often very simple, in fact. What makes that simple guidance effective, though, is that it's delivered in the context of, uh, of a real conversation, a conversation that is founded in what both parties, in fact, would experience as a, as a real personal connection. I've been speaking with Dr. Luke Bergman, Director of the Behavioral Health Services Department for the County of San Diego. Dr. Bergman, thank you very much. Thanks, Maureen. Appreciate it. If you or someone you know is experiencing thoughts of suicide or a behavioral health crisis, the new number to call is 988. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. mcasd.org.
This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Seventeen members of Congress were among those arrested yesterday during a demonstration for abortion rights outside the U.S. Supreme Court. And San Diego Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs was one of them. It was one of many protests that have taken place in Washington since the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade last month. Supporters say the action is part of a larger effort to secure reproductive rights through legislation. Two women's health bills were approved by the House last week, but they are unlikely to make it through the Senate. Joining me is Democrat Sarah Jacobs, representative for San Diego's 53rd District. And Sarah Jacobs, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Now, there have been a lot of protests, as I've said. So what was the purpose of the protest yesterday? You know, yesterday I joined with uh, 16 other members of Congress and a number of, of activists to march from the Capitol to the Supreme Court uh, to really show how important and urgent this moment is and that we will not stop fighting until we make sure that Americans across this country have the fundamental right to bodily autonomy. And why were you and the others arrested at the protest? We it was a, an unlawful uh, congregation. We were blocking uh, a, a crossway, uh, and so uh, we got arrested. Uh, and you know, I felt like it was important because this fight is really happening on the bodies of people across this country. And we know uh, as Californians that while we have this right right now, that's not guaranteed. There could be a federal abortion ban if Republicans come back into power. And I felt like it was important for me to put my body on the line for this incredibly fundamental right. Did you expect to get arrested at this protest? We were warned that it was a possibility. Okay, so you were sort of prepared when you were hauled in. (laughs) Yes. Okay. All right. So two bills passed the House last week, one that would secure abortion rights into law and the second to assure women to access to travel for an abortion across state lines. But both are not expected to pass in the Senate. Where does that leave the effort for supporters of abortion rights? So I think we need a multi-pronged approach. First is we need to do everything we can to codify the right to abortion into law. As you said, we did pass it again in the House, and we are still working with our colleagues in the Senate to see what might be possible there. Although, as you said, uh, it will be important for us to get two more Democratic senators next year to really be able uh, to to probably get this done. Um, But while we're working on codifying that right, we're also codifying other rights that we know from Justice Thomas's concurrence are potentially at risk, like the right to marriage, to marry who you love, which we passed yesterday, like the right to contraception, which we'll be passing tomorrow. Uh, And uh, we're also working on things to protect people in states who are criminalizing abortion right now, like the travel uh, bill that you mentioned, like access to medication abortion, and like my bill, the My Body, My Data Act, that will protect people's reproductive and sexual health data uh, to not be used against them in these states. Now, the Right to Contraception Act is a bill that you co-led. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What does that codify? Yes. Well, before the Griswold decision uh, that the Supreme Court decided, there were many states where you couldn't access birth control or you had to get the permission of your husband to be able to access birth control. 
We know that access to birth control and contraception, including emergency contraception, is incredibly important for people to plan their lives, to have autonomy and agency, to make decisions. It's an economic thing. It's a right I've had my entire life and that I've used for decades. You know, I used birth control pills in high school to deal with my cramps. I relied on an IUD for years. I've even used Plan B uh, and was able to get it over the counter uh, at the times that I needed it. And these are important things that people need to access to be able to make choices and decisions about their own lives and and really fulfill their goals and dreams. And so what this bill would do would just say that no state could get in the way of people having that right to access contraception and that uh, medical professionals have to provide uh, contraception as well to, to patients who need it. Now, Republicans say that House Democrats are being unreasonably alarmist in suggesting travel for abortion and contraception are being threatened. What's your response to that? Well, people told me I was being unreasonably alarmist a few years ago when I said that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, and here we are. So I'm not willing to take them at their word anymore. In fact, they, there are many Republicans who are saying that they want to get rid of these rights. We saw Justice Thomas's concurrence that specifically laid out these rights. And if we're being so alarmist, what's the harm in codifying them into law so that people are protected no matter what the Supreme Court does? Do you think President Biden should be doing more like declaring lack of access to abortion a national health emergency? We're working closely with the White House to make sure that they're doing everything they can on this issue. I was heartened by the first round of executive orders that he released, and I think that there's more that they are going to be releasing and that they're going to be able to do. Um, There's an important role for the executive branch to play in enforcing access to medication abortion and enforcing uh, the right of anyone to travel across state lines. Uh, And and I know that the Biden administration is looking at every possible way they can work to protect people who need abortions right now. You know, you have said that as one of the younger members of Congress and one of the younger women in Congress, that this is a very personal issue for you. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm one of the few women of reproductive age in Congress. So this is not a hypothetical question for me, just like it's not a hypothetical question for millions of Americans across this country. This is radical justices on the Supreme Court saying that they know more about my body and my healthcare decisions than I do. This is the very real threat that they could take away my right to access contraception that I use for my life right now. Um, As a young woman, reproductive healthcare is my health care. For many years, that's the only doctor that I went to. And so um, these are very real things for me, like they're very real things for many young people across this country. And that's why I feel such a sense of urgency and uh, feel really strongly that we need to be doing everything we can in Congress to protect people right now because people are being harmed right now. I've been speaking with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, and thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. With summer in full swing, San Diego residents are flocking to the beaches. But as the county implements new water quality tests, there are lingering concerns over whether or not the beaches should be left open in the first place. Joining me now with more is Voice of San Diego environmental reporter Mackenzie Elmer. Mackenzie, welcome back to Midday Edition. Hi, thanks for having me back. 
So can you break down how these new water quality tests work and why the county is rolling them out now? The county started to implement in May a test that is much more sensitive and can identify bacteria or pollution in the water down to its DNA. And so that's kind of um, something that is also helpful because the county can test the water and get results back within six to eight hours. So, you know, presumably beachgoers would know what the water quality is like the day that they would enter the water. So what have been the results of these tests so far? Well, that's kind of where our story began here. Um, again, when the county started to use this test, they rolled it out on May 5th. And the results that we were getting back um, showed that water quality appeared to be a lot worse than we previously knew. And again, that's because this new test is much more sensitive. So it can pick up the minutia of bacteria in the water and tell us more precisely about you know, the actual quality of the water. And so that was definitely alarming because for the first time we were seeing water quality, uh, not only in Imperial Beach, which is really close to the U.S.-Mexico border where we have a lot of pollution problems, but also a, also all the way up north to Coronado, uh, which doesn't really experience as bad a water quality under the old technology that we were using. Uh, this new technology showed that that beach water quality was also failing public health standards. And so that was kind of what started a lot of attention in the news locally here about, you know, what, what are these water quality tests about? What do they mean? What does that mean for you know, beachgoers and, and beachside economies. So what is the county saying about how reliable this test is? The county um, public health department that I spoke with, you know, they, um, and also the Department of Environmental Health, there's two departments here that have to do with beach closures and this test. Both of them, you know, have a lot of faith in this test. They, they aren't casting any doubt on their results at all when they talk to me. Um, and this is also a, a test that's been approved by the Environmental Protection Agency. And in fact, it's the first time, as I understand it, one of these tests that detects the DNA of bacteria has been used in the entire world. So San Diego truly is like a guinea pig for this brand new water quality test. But there's potential that, you know, this test will start to be used in, in other cities. So, so far, the, you know, the city, or sorry, the county is definitely behind its test and hasn't cast any doubt on it. But they definitely changed their policy um, as there was more of a public outcry for beach closures. And can you talk about where this ocean pollution is coming from in the first place? When you talk to people in the South Bay, which is really what we're talking about for this story and where these beach closures started to cause that public outcry, you know, everybody down there knows that there's a source of sewage pollution from the Tijuana River, basically the city of Tijuana. And there's actually another source of sewage pollution that we know, we know of in Tijuana, and it's this broken down wastewater treatment plant called Punta Bandera. And it's virtually spilling sewage basically all the time into the ocean there. And so in the summertime, those currents bring that sewage northward. And I think that's what these tests are really picking up and proving and showing that there is indeed pollution a lot more often in the summertime than the old technology could necessarily um, pick up in time to tell us. Here's the million dollar question. I mean, when we see those signs that say there may be pollution, this water may cause illness, uh, is the beach water actually safe to swim in, even if the beaches are open? Well, according to 
public health standards, no, the water wouldn't be safe to swim in, according to the test results that show there's a high amount of this bacteria that actually indicates there's a high amount of fecal matter in the water if you look at those tests. And that's precisely what the test showed. And the story talked about is, you know, even though the county changed its policy July 1st, put out these warning signs, the water quality was still failing public health standards. So But one thing, one caveat here is this Punta Bandera wastewater treatment plant that I have talked about earlier, that doesn't appear to count as a known source of pollution yet. And I'm not sure why I've asked the county if they will identify that as a known source and they haven't affirmed that yet. And that's kind of the point that Imperial Beach and Coronado are are making kind of a larger picture here is like, we all know where the sewage is coming from. Do you stand by your test or not? Is the water safe enough to swim in? I think what the region might face then is if, you know, the county decides to call it and say, okay, water quality isn't meeting public health standards. We know that the sewage is coming from Tijuana. That means that we'd probably face a lot of summer beach closures. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego environmental reporter Mackenzie Elmer. Mackenzie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. A new bar in San Diego is offering a high-fidelity twist on the typical cocktail experience. Part-Time Lover, located in the former Bar Pink space in North Park, is a vinyl listening bar, meaning that, along with Manhattans and Martinis, guests can enjoy curated selection of tunes spun from vinyl records by live DJs. The Hybrid Concept Lounge is a partnership between Hospitality Collective Consortium Holdings and local music institutions folk arts rare records. Midday Edition producer Harrison Patino spoke about the new space with folk arts owner Brendan Boyle, who also coordinates music curation for Part-Time Lover. Here's Brendan Boyle on where the idea for the hybrid concept came from. So what do you think it is that really resonates with people about the idea of having a curated playlist for them at their night at the bar? There's a lot to say about it uh, because we, we try to interact with the people at the bar and have those interactions affect what kind of direction we might go in that evening. We've been open for just a month and we've kind of wanted a very relaxed, laid back atmosphere, a very slow atmosphere. And that has resonated really well with people. So I know that for me, one of the best things about hearing someone put a playlist together is the chance to discover some new music. Is that something you're hoping that guests will get out of this experience? Yeah, that's a big motivation for us and how we've always been motivated at Folk Arts. We want people to come into our store wanting to discover something new, wanting to ask the question, what is this? So discovery is one of the main motivations for what we do. All right. Well, it wouldn't make sense just to talk about this music. You've gone ahead and curated five tracks from some of the previous sets at Part-Time Lover to give our listeners an idea of what's been happening at the space. So let's start off with this first track you've chosen. It's by jazz musician Ethel Ennis, and it's called Blue Prelude. What can you tell us about it? It's just a beautiful, beautiful track from uh, Ethel Ennis's first record, Lullaby for Losers. It features Hank Jones on piano, Kenny Clark on drums, 
Uh, we play a lot of music like this at Part-Time Lover, where it's slow, relaxed, a little moody, a little historical. It just sounds amazing on that system. Let me sigh, let me cry. And that's Blue Prelude by Ethel Ennis. Up next, we have a song by Brian Eno of Roxy Music fame. Tell us about this song called The Big Ship. Oh, it's just a beautiful recording. Brian Eno is a uh, ambient music pioneer, and we like to dabble in, in music like this recording here, where you don't really need to describe it. It's beyond words or beyond description. It's a bit otherworldly and experiential, and it's beautiful. The song you're hearing is The Big Ship by Brian Eno. Moving right along, we have a pretty deep cut here from R&B singer Jeanette Baker. Brennan, what can you tell us about Vacation From My Mind? Oh, it's just an obscure early 70s soul track that uh, it's just nice and relaxing, kickback music. It represents a lot of the music that we're spinning down there where it just feels right uh, with that beautiful sound system in that beautiful space. Wish. song is called Vacation From My Mind by Jeanette Baker. The next track on our list is something a little different from harpist Mary Lattimore. It's called Wawa by the Ocean. Brennan, what can you tell us about this track? Mary Lattimore is sort of like Brian Eno in that she is an ambient artist, a harpist, and her music is truly beautiful and truly otherworldly. And, you know, I think the calming, experiential nature of her recordings have played a big influence on uh, the direction we have taken for the first month uh, with this collaboration. And it's just lovely, lovely music.
Wawa by the Ocean by harpist Mary Lattimore. Finally, on our list of selections from part-time lovers' curated DJ sets is definitely my personal favorite. It's by Ethiopian saxophonist Gedechu Mercuria. Brennan, tell us a little bit about this track. It's called Musica Hiwote. Well, this particular track blends jazz with traditional Ethiopian music, the ancient Ethiopian melody Tizeta. And it's a truly dynamic, one-of-a-kind recording that kind of transcends borders or style and is truly unique. listening to Musica Hiwote by Gedechu Mercuria. For the full playlist of these tracks, you can visit our website at kpbs.org. I've been speaking with Folk Arts Rare Records owner and part-time lover music curator, Brendan Boyle. Brendan, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Comic-Con International returns to its first full-scale in-person summer show since 2019. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando has been attending for more than four decades and explores why the pop culture convention has some dedicated fans. Once upon a time, a geeky fan could walk up to Comic-Con on opening day and buy a ticket to enter the gates of the pop culture kingdom. But then, twilight fell upon the land. Okay, it's not entirely the fault of Twilight Moms, but that sparkling vampire film did bring an influx of obsessive fans, just as Marvel was launching phase one of its cinematic universe. So around 2009, things began to change for Comic-Con and for those attendees who were determined to get into Hall H. The lines are crazy, right? And people are sleeping out and you're getting tired because you're like, yes, I did 12 hours by myself in line. And well, why are we doing that? Because being a geek is all about passionate commitment. Brooklyn agreed to share an insider perspective, as long as I didn't use her full name. She runs one of the multiple Hall H line groups. I read on Reddit that their group is 100 people this year for Hall H Saturday. So it kind of intensified where you had to be more organized because everybody around you was also being more organized. She has a Google spreadsheet to organize shifts for people waiting in line. Attending Comic-Con now requires tactical skill if you want to get an exclusive toy or autograph or attend Hall H when Marvel has a panel. But it's worth it, says Brooklyn. 
we're all going to the same thing and we're all hyper. And then when you get in that room and you've worked that hard and you're with all your friends, when Tom Hiddleston walks out dressed as Loki. Look how far you've fallen. I don't know, you worked for it and you're excited. Lining up in the sweltering heat for hours. You're happy and you're with all the people that you worked for. Huddling together in the dark. Like beasts. The crowd, the sound of the crowd. But when everybody's camped out and then sat in that room all day long for that Marvel panel, and they finally start telling you everything that's gonna happen for the next few years, the feel of the crowd is just something that you won't get anywhere else. Sometimes that intensity can be overwhelming as when Brooklyn joined a crowd as it surged forward to enter the Hall H line. Everybody rushed to go into the tents. In hindsight, I should not have joined everybody. But my feet were off the ground, and the crowd was just carrying me. Attending Comic-Con requires planning, says Brooklyn. So figure out what you're into. What are you comfortable with? If you're not comfortable sleeping out, that's fine. The plan can be that you'll just check out Hall H and see if it's a walk-in day with no line. Just don't expect that on a Saturday when Warner Brothers and Marvel are bringing their superheroes. But Brooklyn says your plan should include some basics for survival. So not everything's going to be at your fingertips. So start thinking about what you're going to need if you're going to be outside your room for 16 hours a day to make sure that you're comfortable, hydrated, and ready. So pack snacks and water, deodorant if you want to be considerate of others, and wear comfy shoes because you can easily do 30,000 steps on the exhibit floor. This year also has a new pandemic requirement, says Comic-Con spokesperson David Glanzer. We do have a mask mandate, so people will be seeing everybody wearing a mask, uh, whereas before I think you saw mostly people in costume with masks. Attendees will also need proof of vaccination or a negative test to enter the geek kingdom. But the most important thing to remember is that Comic-Con can be whatever you make it. You can do panels or shop or game or cosplay or just hang with friends and kindred souls. You know, you, you bond on a level that you won't bond with other people on a daily basis. It's, it's a place where I, I don't get a lot of judgment, and that's always nice. In other words, Chewy, we're home. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. Comic-Con International kicks off tonight and runs through Sunday at the San Diego Convention Center and the extended Comic-Con campus. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.